Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. Every fortnight I talk to a different architect from around the world to discuss an inspiring house that they have designed. In this episode, I talk to the architect Janney Botsford about a house in a garden. The project is an incredible solution to creating a home on a small, overshadowed and overlooked back garden plot in central London. On his website, he describes the central London home as a house that is a roof and a hole in the ground. Others have described it as being like an iceberg, with only one floor of accommodation above ground and two below. The defining visual feature is the roof, a curved, funnelled oculus, like the Pantheon in Rome, with a rectangular opening at the top, showing only sky. In itself, it is a thing of beauty, whose shape responds to the natural light conditions on the plot, and to protecting views from other neighbours' windows. But the hidden magic of this home is how Janney, through meticulous analysis, has managed to fill two subterranean levels of the home with natural light. Finding out how he and his team achieved that was fascinating, and the completed house has received international recognition and several awards. If you'd like to find out more about Janney Botsford Architects and House in a Garden, you can find more information on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Janney, thank you very much for joining me today and uh, giving your time to talk about um, your work. Hi George, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm very excited to, to have you on because um, I absolutely love this project. We're going to be talking about House in a Garden today um, and I think a really good starting point on this project is it's, it's a project that's close to home for you um, and I think your best place to maybe just give a bit of context to the listener of where this house is located before we get into why it is the way it is. Yeah, it's very close. I mean, we live in the house that it's in front of, that was originally the garden of. Um, I've lived in that building for nearly 30 years now, in Notting Hill in London. Mm -hmm. And it's an area of kind of big uh, Victorian stucco-fronted villas, mostly detached with gardens at the back that kind of range in size and some kind of industrial pockets that used to be there that have often been converted since then. And there's there was a bungalow in the back garden the whole time we lived have lived there, which was always this kind of strange anomaly that exists. I suppose in the 60s there were kind of different planning laws and people had the ability to do these things, but it essentially took up the whole of what was the garden of this villa, and it came up for sale. What is it? Ten, twelve years ago. And we thought we should really do something with it. So we set up a property company to develop that plot and managed to buy the site and work on it for planning. And then sold the house with planning to our client, who then built it with us, which was great. That's interesting. I didn't realize then it was a development that was was very much led by you. Yeah, I um, mean, it, you, you, I just wanted to be in control of it, it sounds, you know. <laughs> typical architect being in control but i mean i also kind of understood there was an opportunity there mm. um that i thought could be really interesting and we'd worked in the past on backland sites and tricky sites where the context has a kind of big influence on what you can do and we thought it could be a really interesting first project to do in that way mm -hmm. and it's not a normal backland site is it no. in the sense that, I, I mean, I was amazed when I found out that there was a bungalow there before, because you'd think this is one of those unique projects that you think, God, why would somebody take on the challenge of yeah. squeezing something into what is, it takes up the whole garden. It backs right onto the buildings around it, doesn't it? Yes. I mean, we've, we've created garden around the house, but um, mm. it would never have been possible if that house hadn't been built there in the 60s. So because that was there and was ugly and an eyesore and a problem for all the neighbours, Mm -hmm. I think we we were given that opportunity to take it away and replace it with something better. Yeah, And I think as a kind of principle, that's always one that's accepted usually by planning authorities in London, is if you kind of improve the condition of the conservation area, you make it a better place. So mm -hmm. it's worth doing. So I'm interested then in in terms of who this has been designed for. 
you you'd already developed a design that had planning before there was an owner in mind was it like it is today yeah so the the design above ground and i suppose the first floor of the below ground well let's let me start again the the house we designed was on ground floor and one basement floor Mm -hmm. and we designed it for a fictional family with two kids i suppose was the kind of idea it just so happened we were a family with two kids (laughs) and we kind of did think about could we live there would we prefer to live there than where we are and so on so in a way it was a way of developing the brief was thinking of it as something for ourselves but when we sold it to um our client he was a bachelor and he wanted a very different kind of house much more kind of private space for his own enjoyment and actually uh asked us to add an another new basement floor below the existing one so we went back to the planning for a second basement floor to get mm-hmm. things like the swimming pool and this extra kind of living space gallery space play space cinema that's that's down there as well and in fact reduced the number of bedrooms to two so it yeah. became very very tailored to him so i suppose the whole kind of interior development exactly how it was laid out and the use of different spaces was then specifically tailored to him and this person is still living there now is is the occupant or? no so just before we started to build it he decided he wasn't going to live in it and he would <laughs> sell it so it's actually just been sold to somebody I haven't met yet. Uh, I'm meeting on Friday. and um, But interestingly, he was kind of so in love with it that he didn't try to change it at all. Mm-hmm. He still wanted to be built as he had imagined himself living in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we walked around together and he's kind of wistfully imagining himself living in it, but never did. And so you're developing this design then with a with a sort of family in mind and a kind of um, fictional kind of family basically in mind for mm. for occupying this house. But you did you know right from the start that this was going to be something that you're going to sort of heavily invest in in terms of design that it was going to be something special because there could have been something ordinary on this site, couldn't there? Well, I suppose so. Yeah, um, we always invest maybe too much in our projects um we always look at them as an opportunity to investigate different issues and see what we can get out of them um so i think this one was no different but interesting in terms of the kind of question we initially assumed the planners would want something kind of hidden away and camouflaged almost so Mm. we actually went to them with the first meeting with a very camouflaged courtyard house with kind of green roof and you can't see me kind of logic to it Mm. and they immediately looked at this and said no this doesn't contribute anything to the conservation area and why don't you come back with something positive which is kind of really interesting for me i just was quite taken back by that and it made us completely rethink it and i think it was at that point the idea of a kind of pavilion in a garden setting came about and that's how we then developed it and took it back to them and then they were very happy with that as a concept mm-hmm. that is an interesting approach isn't it from, yeah. from conservation and so that's kind of helped it develop into what it is now which is it is very much a sculptural form it's very present isn't it um yeah. what was was there a moment of kind of creation of, of this idea of what you've created with the roof that's the main the roof is the main visual element isn't it to the to the outside world um and it's this this vaulted copper roof kind of stretching up to the to the sunlight what what gave you the idea for that for its its shape and form and look so i mean the process we follow on our projects is to do a lot of analysis of a site at the beginning sometimes stretching into months of analysis looking at sunlight views the wind whatever it is that the kind of issues are privacy i think especially in this context between neighbors and through that process we, we looked at it very carefully using computational tools, uh, especially for um, the sunlight analysis, and emerged from that process places where we thought should be left as outside garden spaces that we should look out onto, 
and opportunities for light to enter, especially what we now call the oculus at the top of the roof. So those kind of places were merged through this process, and in a way, the roof form is a kind of joining of the dots of those elements. And the house itself sits in the shadow. It's a very overlooked, overshadowed site, north-facing. The house itself sits in the shadow and looks out into three spaces, two garden-facing east of garden-facing west and up to the sky where the oculus is. And everything then flows from that, especially when you then go down through the house, how light comes in on the lower levels. Mm-hmm. So daylight and view is really kind of sculpting the, the form of, of yeah. this house. So, I, I mean, think... I, I, I try and not talk about it as a sculpture, but talk yeah. about it as a kind of result of that process, which may be sculptural, but it came about only because, not because of any willful reasons, but because we were trying to solve a technical problem of bringing as much light into a site that actually is quite problematic, mm-hmm. I think, in, in London, um, because you want to eke out as much sunlight as you can whenever it's available. So you kind of view that then as, a, as almost like a process of elimination of there's various elements of there's only sun coming into these parts, so therefore these have to be outside. Yes. And the buildings sort of become what's left over. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's really interesting for me because I look down on it most days I look out of the window just to have a look. Um, <laughs> and I see the sun doing what I predicted it would do. And just hitting the skylight when there is a tiny chink of sun between a gap between two buildings mm-hmm. or filling the light of uh, the courtyard. And, you know, it's very interesting to see that on a kind of daily basis happening and see it changing through the seasons, which is also a really important part of the kind of problem of sunlight is that it's constantly changing. Um, but it's predictable, so you can work out what's going to happen and allow, allow that kind of geometry to be infiltrated in the house itself. So this key defining feature, this the, the roof light that's at the top of the, the oculus, at the top of the roof, is that positioned then in such a way that it, brings the most light into the footprint across across the, the day. Yes, it's it's kind of partly that, but partly when there is no other light, that is the one place where there is light mm-hmm. because it's so overshadowed by the kind of five-story buildings it's adjacent to. So often you can be in the house and there's light coming in through the oculus but not into the gardens. So yeah. that was one aspect of that. I think the... The other aspect that the kind of the overall form had to deal with was a very large plane tree that was very close to the building. Um, we in fact removed the original plane tree because it was damaging a neighbouring property, and replaced it with a large tree that will grow into the space that is part of the form of the roof. The kind of curvature is a kind of empty space that the tree will fill mm-hmm. over time, and at the same time views between neighbours looking out from their windows had to be kind of protected. Uh, So the form drops down quite dramatically from where the skylight is, where there are no neighbouring windows, to where there are windows so that people can still enjoy those views. Hmm. I mean, you can tell from looking at it that it's it's incredible how it's achieved that of its very minimal impact on the people around it. Um, by the way, this roof, the, the roof just sort of scoops down and scoops the light down. It, it probably brings more daylight in some respects into people's houses than what was there before. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I really like the way as well that with it's a very small, compact plot. Not only is it compact in terms of the houses around it, but also the actual footprint. But you've created by having these gardens either side, it's a cro- a crosslit space as well. So it's a very open feeling on there is only one floor above ground, the, the open plan living space. Um how how challenging was privacy? Because obviously there's a contradiction there, isn't there? Wanting to bring as much light in and have as much view as possible mm. out. Yet you've got neighbours all all around um on what is quite a modern kind of open plan living space. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean the the form eventually allowed one to completely turn one's back on the main house behind you, the mm-hmm. one I live in, so that you're not aware of it anymore. The minute you enter the house, it kind of dissolves completely, and all you look out to is 
the longer views to the west and longer views to the east. On the west-hand side, the kind of windows of neighbouring properties are oblique to you, so that's less of a problem. On the east, there's a bit more overlooking, but the kind of position of the edge of the roof, blinds, planting, kind of mitigates that. So the feeling when you're in it is very much not that you're overlooked, and I think that's mm. a really critical thing to overcome. Because, you know, it's it's a thing that culturally we don't want to be overlooked here. We don't we mm. want privacy and it's a really important thing to have. Mm-hmm. So that was a really important part of how all those spaces evolved. And how were you exploring that in the sort of early design stages? Are you kind of working with sketches or do you work with models or three D modeling? Yeah, I mean it's nearly all testing that in computer models really. I mean, we made lots and lots of physical models of this project, but more, I would say, on the development of the final form of the roof. But in terms of kind of organization of things, I'd say we built we build context models that understand where all the kind of neighboring windows are. And then we'll test that for views from different positions within the house or from the positions of a neighboring property. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the kind of technique we'll use on most projects now because I think it's a really important aspect of how these work, these projects work. And was there anything that sort of proved surprisingly challenging of of all these kind of parameters when we're talking about the outside context? Was there anything that was really kind of sort of niggling away that just couldn't was very difficult to solve? Well if you knew the site before and how miserable it was, you know, it's a kind of typical north-facing, overshadowed, not very pleasant place to be. And the fact, I think, we've overcome that, so that's not the sense you have at all. Mm. You know, and I I would say that was the hardest thing to overcome, and that's what we've overcome. And and how do you think you achieved that? Well, through this process, I would say, of very careful analysis of the potentials for light in that garden, you know, taken on on their own, we we developed it by removing the existing house, analysing the site, mm. not just at ground level, but at kind of every metre going up in slices, up kind of eight, nine metres, so that we understood the differences in height and the differences in section of how light was behaving. Mm-hmm. And through that process is how we came up with uh, the final organisation. And from so from your property where you live, you you can you kind of see you can see the the creation in all its glory, and you can see the sort of sculpted form and, as it would appear. But in terms of the day to day experience of this house, you'd never see. It's very rare that you see sort of bits in its entirety. So could you maybe talk me through how you kind of enter this house and what the sort of first experiences are of of seeing and engaging with the building? Well, firstly, it's really interesting. The person who lives in that house doesn't ever see the outside of it. <laughs> Yeah. which I do, so they don't see it. Um, but that's kind of part of the experience, is I think that when you enter it, it's all a surprise. But let me just take you through how it works. So from the street, it's not visible at all. There, There is nowhere you can see this house from the street, from any of the surrounding streets. And you have to go through a gate of the main house, come through the garden, to another gate and you go down a side passage that's uh, just over a meter wide and you walk through to the back and then that's the first time when you enter into the west facing garden and from there you see really you kind of see a hovering roof over two walls two garden walls is the sense of what you feel and a plane of glass that you then kind of look into and then you enter through a sliding door into a circulation space that has the stair and then you walk around to the east facing side and enter the main living space that then opens up to you and to the view and to the sky and to the form of the roof itself Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's a kind of unusual sequence of spaces that you enter and go through there's much less of that kind of traditional porch front door hallway it's much more kind of open all-embracing space once you get to the garden that the house is in because you enter via 
it, it's sliding glass sliding doors is it on the on the main facades yeah. yeah it's almost like the front entrance to the house is almost if somebody else's house would be entered from from the back if you're entering from the garden it's that yeah. kind of yes yeah, so it's got that feeling it's kind of relaxed yeah. and not very uh, hierarchical yeah and what's the kind of reaction from i mean i imagine you've taken people around that maybe never never visited before what's the, what's that reaction like of this gradual unveiling is there is there there must be an element of surprise i'm seeing yeah this. absolutely i think you, you if you don't know what you're coming to see there's a very big surprise if you've seen those the images of the form of the roof you're intrigued to understand how it works but i think that that kind of sense of it erupting up to the sky as you enter into the main space plus the kind of materiality of that roof that's very powerful it really takes you away from where you've just been 30 seconds before in mm-hmm. the middle of the city of london so that's i would say the kind of biggest surprise is how you're removed from what it's like to be in a city and taken away to somewhere kind of calm oasis like essentially that has its own feeling of its own world mm-hmm. and the the kind of surprise and the beauty of this this very sculptural roof shape um were there any kind of visual clues or inspirations that you'd had or, or things that you that you really wanted to express when you were designing this something you'd seen or no that's not how it work i mean this 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 form really did evolve through the process we talked about and yeah through a series of models we made and obviously we made judgments about do we like this one do we like that one but it was never a kind of relationship between that and anything else we'd seen or were trying to mimic in any way yeah um no i think that's not that's not what we what we do I find that fascinating that as a process of because seeing the, the building and knowing what it looks like of this idea that it gradually emerged emerged this way over over a sort of period of time and not I would have looked at this and thought oh this would have been from and some initial sketch that was done and then almost sort of working backwards to then yeah. make it work but it, it's entirely the opposite of that. But this is what's so interesting I think about the process is that you don't know where it's going to go. Mm. Um, we do this in the teaching I do with um, another architect, Kate Darby, in Studio in the Woods. We do a make in three days a form that is generated usually through something to do with sunlight. Mm-hmm. And we make this in the woods. And we start off not knowing what's going to happen. And after three days, this form emerges. But what's interesting, if you work with natural phenomena, is you will always end up with something organic you'll never end up with a square box. It's just mm-hmm. not, not possible. If you if you are reacting properly to the movement of the sun and what's happening around you. So we just wait and see. And, yeah. you know, when I look at it, now it's the culmination of the research and all the issues that it had to deal with, like overlooking the tree, the neighbors, the sunlight, the house we are in. And I look at it as a form that does all those things. So I see it as something highly contextual. And yet the contextual argument or discussion is usually about fitting in with your neighbors and mimicking Mm. neighbors or taking historical cues from neighbors. My kind of historic, my uh, approach to to that is, is different in that this form is highly contextual because it could only be where it is. It couldn't be anywhere else. I wouldn't generate that form anywhere else unless those exact conditions were replicated, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've spoke to a few architects about this kind of, um, that you can often get this approach where you do something that's so stunning and looks like this, and then you start getting clients that come to you asking for that to be made again and kind of explain, well, no, that's not the point, and that's mm. not that's not what we do. Um, you couldn't, or you, you wouldn't replicate this somewhere else, would you? Um no, I think of, that, that. Sorry, go on. Uh, let's talk about the 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 inside of this roof, um, which that beautiful kind of visual of being in the living space, looking up at the Oculus, and it's I mean it's not even a rectangular shape, is it? The roof light, but then we've got these timbers that 
that run up. So this kind of like a top hat of, of timber structure that's that's um, that's running up. Now that must have been a very complex piece of engineering um, to yeah, design. That was that was very difficult to achieve. I mean, interestingly, we didn't start with it being timber. We didn't start with it being an exposed lattice, but that evolved through the process again. You know, the next process after we kind of decided what the form should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the timber lattice is very complex because nothing is symmetrical and everything is curving in three different directions. So each glue lamb beam curves on plan, on section and on elevation. And we always imagine it being a kind of highly digital process to make this. And actually it was for a long time. We imagined 3d milling glue lamb beams, all this kind of approach. Um, it turned out in the end, the German company we worked with, Zublin, uh, found a manufacturer in northern Italy who said they would do it essentially manually with traditional glue lamb techniques, but using the kind of digital model we had provided to set out exactly each beam individually, which they printed at one-to-one, put on the floor, made jigs for these glue lamb beams, and then built up each each beam separately. So when we went to see this uh, being built, it's kind of an extraordinary experience because you've seen it in the computer for years. You've seen physical models in your studio, and then you're finally seeing a one-to-one built version of it following exactly all the rules that you'd established at the beginning. So did they? this is in the Dolomites, is it? Were yeah. they? And they, yeah. did they construct the whole thing? Yes, so it was all built there. Then they took it apart into, I think, eight sections. And then it was brought to this country and craned in in eight sections and re-bolted together. And did it all fit? Yes, and it all fit. <laughs> yeah, it was very um, precisely measured. Yeah. And I've I've seen this be kind of compared to, or there's been a reference before of it being like the Parthenon, which is one of my favourite buildings. But the the circular the Pantheon, temple, not the, the Panth- sorry, the Pantheon in Rome, um, the circular building with the hole in the top yeah. um, to the sky. What's it like underneath this roof? I imagine it's a nice space. You could lie on the floor and just look up. And yeah, that's time. what you want to do in that space, to be honest. I'd, I'd say looking up through a very pure hole up to the sky is a kind of very powerful experience. Um, I would have loved it not to have glass like the Pantheon. Yeah. Um, but we did have to have glass. But it's surprising kind of with the angle. You don't really see reflections and you do get this very pure view. We've done some time-lapse films of looking up over 24 hours, and it's extraordinary how much the light changes and you see the stars moving, you see the sky changing clouds. and So there's a lot to see, actually, and it it just takes you away from the city and what you're doing Mm. and gives you a kind of new, new thing to think about. Is it difficult to see buildings? Is it you can't see a... buildings through the sky yeah. at all. That's one of the pleasures of it. Yeah, you do from the sides and at, in the basement. If you look up, you do you do see buildings. But from the from looking through the Oculus, you get a completely pure kind of view of the sky. It's, a, it's then a very simple space that's, that's left behind in terms of the, the living space. It's glazed on two sides. It's got this beautiful roof above. And then this shining copper kitchen module that's, that's kind of floating and hiding the stairs behind. Yeah. Um, what was the thinking there in terms of, um, then in terms of process of deciding on materiality and how, how the place would look internally? Yeah, so we, we took an approach on materials of pairing them back down as much as we could the idea of the copper essentially i suppose came from the roof itself that's copper um we thought it'd be nice to have some of that internally um but the kind of diagram through the house is the kind of internal what we call internal spaces like living rooms bedrooms are all timber lined and the external spaces wet areas bathrooms swimming pool uh spaces you move through all lined in marble so there's that kind of balance between the two materials and then there are some 
other metals brought in for doors and cabinets as you go down. And is this kitchen looking as shiny as it does um, in the pictures? Is yeah, it's got a it's got a coating actually, so it's yeah. very difficult to achieve coating that protects it from uh, actually from changing color. I mean, it, it could have gone the other way where you let it change color over time, but it was decided not to do that. And but they're pretty robust and timeless materials, really, that you're using in this space. Um, was that sort of closely with the with the client once once there was a sort of client in place in terms of developing the interiors on this project? Yeah, I think that idea that you know that marble wall could be there in a thousand years is quite a nice idea of terms of materials. It's very robust once it's there, and I think the timber itself has you know a lot of flexibility of how it can be used and how it can evolve over time. Um, and you know the the marble comes from the earth. It's the buildings a lot about being dug out of the ground. And we were interested in the ideas of copper mining and marble quarrying mm-hmm. being kind of part of that story. So these sort of heavy materials there and then the timber ceiling sort of floating yeah. above with the daylight coming through. Um, and this marble this is, a, is quite a key feature of the interior. And it's Do you first experience it as you're going down the stairs? Is that right? When you, you, yes. you sort of first yes, enter into the subterranean part? As you go down the timber stair to the first basement level and there's a kind of carved marble it's like a scalloped mm. um finish to it that gives it a kind of rawer texture was the idea mm-hmm. so that it's just had a different sense material wise as you as you descended down to the first floor and that that happens then in all the bathroom wet areas in the swimming pool it looks like the kind of wall i know that if i was walking down the stairs you'd just sort of be sliding your hand along and sort of you do textures yes, you, you do, go down you, do. you touch you, you touch everything in the house actually yeah. and is that was that important to you in terms of house design texture yeah i mean i always like when we can to express um materials in that way rather than having layers of build up so i mean i think the marble is transformed by actually the way it's treated not as a smooth surface but as a undulating scallop surface because you're cutting through it again i mean honing it polishes it but this is almost matte in color i mean in um reflectivity Mm -hmm. so it's got a kind of different relationship with light and so on so it's a it's quite an interesting change that happens to the marble itself and so as we, we go down um, stairs, so I mean, another analogy for this house that's been um, likening it to an iceberg in the sense that you've got the one floor above, but there's there's actually a lot of the accommodation is all below ground. There's two floors. Um, and you mentioned before that the owner kind of changed the design slightly. So you've got two bedrooms on the first basement level. Mm-hmm. And then as we descend down into the lowest level, there's swimming pool and another kind of lounge type space. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the real achievement I think of these the lower floors is just how the daylight has been brought in is there are kind of areas that there's this sense of seclusion and they're slightly darker as you would expect in a, in a basement. But then you've used the two gardens that you're talking about before that are either side of the living space for the first basement level. There's then sunken light wells there. So you've got direct view to the outside. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And then as you descend further down, it's then roof lights that are then bringing the light in how did you develop was this very much a similar process to the the process you're describing for the roof and and the above ground areas in terms of carving out this light and bringing it deep into the spaces were you kind of convinced that these spaces would work in design stage that was i'd say much trickier but it the starting point which is why i think it worked is that those two gardens that bring light down through the two levels of the basement are in the optimal location to provide light for the lower floors. So that was the starting point. I think the other thing we did is what you mentioned before, is that having two different views, two different directions for light. So as you come down, you tend to get the sense of both gardens as you you, you look into one, but you can see another one in the other direction. And that happens especially well in the second basement where you've always got 
two sources of light um, at each end of the room rather than just one. And that distributes the light through the spaces much more effectively, but also, you know, critically in the second basement gives you this relationship with light and understanding what time of day it is, understanding the weather, even when you're nine meters underground. And that's, I think, what makes those basements work and makes them actually quite interesting spaces because they're somewhere very different, somewhere very private for London, um, somewhere where you can kind of decompress. And I've been surprised, I think, especially with the second basement, how successful that space is as a kind of space you never thought you needed, but suddenly you need. Mm -hmm. um, I was always worried it would kind of take the, not not take the life out of it, somehow take too much away from the top floor. Mm. But actually now there's this range of spaces you can experience in the house, depending on your mood or the activity you might be wanting to do, where you can say, well, actually, I want to be somewhere more withdrawn, more quiet, maybe a little bit darker. And you go down there, or you might want to go upstairs and be close closer to the garden and see the sky. And I was interested in that, actually, with that lowest floor of what that space has been designed for, because there's, there's a pool there there's a sort of you can swim lengths i think in that pool can't you and it's, yeah. that's top lit what's the what about the main sort of bulk of the space is that sort of seen as more of a sort of snug lounge kind of in a way i mean it was always designed as a indeterminate space that had lots of flexibility so it could be a gallery it could be a music room it could be a study um it could be somewhere just to read a book. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's really interesting, actually, how providing spaces that you haven't said exactly what it has to be is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so I don't know yet how that's going to be used necessarily. Has it, has it been lived in then? No. So, it, so it's not been lived in at all? It's just being lived in now for the first time. Ah, so it's it's yeah. waiting then for, uh, for yeah. this discovery of how it's yeah. going to be used um, well, that would be fascinating to see um, how it kind of evolves then as a house once yeah. it's got the occupant. What's the um, in terms of the the um, the light wells? They're bringing all the light into the lower floors. What have you lined those with around the side? Because that must have been a very important decision. Yeah, so those outside light wells are also lined in the carved marble, right? Yeah, for that reason. But they've got these extraordinary gardens that our landscape architect Todd Longstaff Gowan developed bring the plants down and reflect off the marble and they're incredibly lush now those light wells so um that's really transformed it as well actually that kind of layering of bringing the garden down and the marble walls that line it so you've got there's there's these hanging plants that are coming draping down the wall but there's also things that are planted inside yes. the light well as well so um, there must have been close attention to soil depths and and how they would water and drain as well yes. um, i'm water just amazed that you've found the space for all of that in here you would, you'd expect all the ceiling heights to be so tight um but there's in that there isn't that feeling at all here no we actually went for pretty generous ceilings that was always a, a thought that if you're going to make these basement spaces successful is make them have substantial height i think we end yeah. up with 2.9 in both those floors wow finish with quite a lot in between obviously the services running around but that makes a massive difference actually yeah it seems it feels like this is a project where there's not been any corners cut i mean was is was there anywhere that had to sort of were there any compromises along the way um in this process well because it was so tight and every millimeter mattered i think that's why there are kind of no corners cut because we couldn't afford mm. to cut them. Yeah. Um, every, every millimeter is working hard in that project to create a sense of the things we've been talking about, whether it's in section or on plan or to allow space for plants to grow or big enough space for light to come through a skylight. Um, so that whole, that whole aspect, I think I, I would say, no, there's not really, compromises and i don't know what i would do differently i try not to think about that 
And um, but you worked closely then with a landscape designer that really helped in terms of bringing this sort of planting and, and natural aspects down into the light walls. Was there anyone else that you were working with closely that was that really influenced this project? Well, I'd, I mean, obviously, the structural engineer, um, Steve Atkinson from Built, was fundamental to resolving the roof because it was such a complex problem, actually. Um, so he was very, you know, instrumental in making that happen, finding the right solutions, which we explored a number with a number of different contractors. It wasn't simple to find the right mm-hmm. person to work with as well. He also had to have that kind of sensitivity to seeing it as a challenge that it was and wanting to make that happen. And you worked with a lighting designer as well, is that? Yeah, less so. I mean, really, that was incorporating, I mean, artificial light throughout the mm-hmm. house and embedding that in uh, within the structure that we had developed. But I would say it's got had less of an influence on on how the project evolved. Yeah. Um, so nobody's lived in the house then, in terms of as a as a client. Have you have you managed to spend time in the house? Have you even managed to stay overnight at all? Unfortunately not. <laughs> so it's been sat there empty. I mean, I've spent time in it, which is doing things like these time lapse films were really interesting yeah. because I was able to spend time there and sitting and waiting and charging batteries and you know all that kind of stuff which is a unique experience to have um, in an empty house that you've designed. And I think it's really important that we do that as architects. I mean, I'd I'd love to stay there, but it hasn't happened yet. Was there anything you learned though from that time that you did manage to spend in there or maybe anything that surprised you or exceeded your expectation in terms of how the spaces feel? I think the sense of what's beyond the garden that the house is in is what I didn't anticipate. The long views, actually, because we turn perpendicular to the other houses that actually fan out in that area. So we get this very long view to the west um, and a series of layers of trees and plants of neighbouring gardens. So I would say that that sense of looking beyond upwards through the oculus and beyond through the gardens of the neighbouring properties in the middle of London it's probably the biggest surprise and then the kind of movement of shadows and of plants and through this oculus that kind of ever-changing light conditions that makes mm-hmm. you very very aware of it I think that's the other aspect mm-hmm. and I imagine I mean since having done this project have you got a kind of long line of people that are are asking you to design houses on very tight plots and subterranean sort of city central plots yeah i mean it's never as simple as that but um (laughs) it's been interesting i mean a lot of people have seen it and i suppose it it has a an impact in that way of people considering using us for their project um i mean i do think the idea of using interstitial spaces in cities is a really important one and is a way that you know the housing crisis could be resolved is just literally by using space that's already there that people mm-hmm. haven't thought of either using or haven't thought there is a solution to using it there are lots of examples of that happening but i think that's something that'd be really interesting to explore more and as you as you said about the process it then draws out solutions that are surprising and can't be predicted and yeah yeah and have you got any kind of in, what what interesting projects have you got at the moment in the pipeline in terms of residential work? Um, we're doing a number actually. Um, a very nice house in Sardinia that's in for planning at the moment on the coast. I've um, seen that one. Uh, that looks amazing. So I hope that manages to go through that process. Um, we're doing uh, a house up in Hampstead that originally was well in fact one of the most early works of Norman Foster in 1968 he extended this house an old coach house with a new extension and we're retaining his extension demolishing the old coach house and replacing the new house so we're 
extending the extension is our project. So that's on site now. It's an interesting project. We're doing a house in Manchester, which is a Victorian house. We're extending to the rear, again with Todd doing the garden. Um, we've got a project in the Isle of Wight. Um, and I'm trying to remember. What I've doing. seen a few of them on the website. I mean, what's what the most sort of notable thing about them is how different they all are. I mean, none of them are anything like this project in terms of context or solution. Um, there's a real kind of interesting, challenging range there. Yeah, I mean, I think I always wondered whether that's a good or bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good thing. I think we genuinely don't know where we're going to go with the project when we start. And we follow this process of what I call local adaptation, which is thinking about the climate, the context, the culture that it's in, and allow the process to not quite design itself, but very much to let the solution evolve through that process. Mm -hmm. And that genuinely ends up with different solutions for each project. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, it's interesting to be surprised by that, but also uh, it demonstrates that there needs to be a difference. You don't just import a style or a way of, you know, a building a house to a different location. You actually look mm -hmm. at it and interpret it properly so that it does work for that context. And you and you work on on lots of different projects as well as houses as well. But is there something in particular that you like about um, designing homes that's important to you as a designer? Well, in a way, there's such a kind of microcosm of everything. You've got clients who have differing needs. You have contexts that are differences. You have layers of people, children, grandparents, friends. You have the kind of social aspect of how a house is used. You have privacy. You have so many layers that go into it. And it's so, I suppose, tailored specifically to that person. Um, that's what makes it interesting for us, I suppose. And and what the, and there's challenges that must come with that as well, then, with, with all that sort of multi-layering. Yeah. I mean, again, you're dealing with a different client each time who has completely different idea about how things should be done or how to work with us or how to respond to what we show them. But at the same time, you can't build architecture, good architecture without good clients. They're fundamental because it's the kind of reciprocity between the two that leads to the solution. You know, our mm -hmm. solutions are tailoring these demands that we're finding or the things we're finding trying to resolve, tailoring them specifically to the requirements of that client and how they want to live in the house. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jenny, I'm going to um, ask you the three questions now that I ask um, all of my guests. Um, and I'm going to start with one that's about you and your home and going to ask you, um, you're not allowed to answer the garden room that's at the back, but what is the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Well, it's interesting when you work in or live in your own design. Um, probably the bathroom. <laughs> Why is that? Because um, I designed it as one space as the bathroom and at the other end of the room is the other half of the bathroom. That's the toilet and the basin. You have to walk between to use the bathroom properly. So but I thought it would be peaceful to have a bath with nothing else, which it is, but then. An so elongated bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Won't design that again. Um, and if you could describe one house that you visited um, that's really inspired you and tell me why. Yeah, I think the uh, Casa Luis Barragan in Mexico City, when I visited that, there's very few houses I've been in where you get a kind of tingle in your spine when you walk in and start moving through it. But that really is quite an extraordinary place. And I suppose what I really enjoyed about it was the kind of specificity of the spaces he developed. So he had his own needs and his own activities. He knew 
anticipated wanting to be able to sit in a certain place and look in a certain direction to a courtyard or to sleep peacefully on a mezzanine or to read a book facing another window. And throughout the house, everything is very much like that. It's very, very tailored, but in a very beautiful way and very peaceful way. And it, again, takes you away from the kind of city and literally kind of just beyond this door is this whole new world. Mm -hmm. And it's an extraordinary place. And then if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? Well, I think somebody who used to work for me, Hiroshi Takeyama, who's now back in Kyoto with his own office. He worked with me for 10 years and was very kind of important part of the office and a very talented designer. And I've always thought I'd love him to design me a house, actually. Designing if a he house would do it. for your old boss. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Jenny, congratulations on the project. Um, it's a, a really beautiful house and it was Thank lovely to, to chat with you and find out a bit more about the process. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Janney Botsford Architects, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com and try out the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you're interested in hearing about another home where the architect has expertly used natural light, albeit in a very different context, you might be interested to listen to episode 17, where I talk to the architect Neil DeShaco about his project Sun Slice House. You can find the link at the podcast website. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.